Just wanted to tell you about a little personal crisis I had a few weeks ago. My all-time favorite brown shoes developed a hole in the lining, and my toe kept getting hung in it as I would walk. So not only was it painful, but it was a little bit dangerous. So I figured, well, I guess I better go to the repair shop because um, I just couldn't let go of these lovely shoes. Um, they're, they're real leather. They're very comfortable because, and that's important to me because I have bad feet and I can't buy, wear like a cheap shoe. These shoes were so comfortable and were still in good shape and they were such a good color to go with lots of shades of brown. And Anyway, I just couldn't let go of them. I hate to tell you how devoted I was to these shoes. It's probably sinful. But anyway, so I head off to the repair shop with my shoes in hand. And I get there and I show them to the, to the repairman. And he says, I'm sorry, but there's really nothing I can do about this. Um, if I try to put something down in there, it's just going to wear out again. Well, I just couldn't accept that verdict. I just... <laughs> I just couldn't accept it. I did, I, so I started listing all the reasons I just told you of how wonderful shoes were. And he says, well, I, I know, I understand all that, but don't you know that shoes have a shelf life? <laughs> he said, the rest of the shoes, leather, and that's going to last as long, a long time. But the lining down there in the toe, that's man-made, and it's just going to wear out again. I said, shelf life? You know, to myself, I never heard of shelf life on a shoe. Never thought of that. Well, I'm not above begging, so I continue. And I say, please, isn't there anything you can do? I mean, if I have to replace these shoes, it's probably going to cost me $200. And, and, and anyway, I'll never find another pair as good as these shoes. And can't you, please, can't you think of something? And so he thinks a little bit, and he kind of scratches his head, and he says, well, I suppose I could, maybe I could find a really thin piece of leather and put down there in the toe, but it's going to make it tight. And I said, oh, they're a little too big. It's okay. <laughs> How much? He says, $15. I said, deal. I could hardly keep the, to the speed limit on the way home because I had to tell Chuck I saved him $185. <laughs> but, you know, later that afternoon I got to thinking about it and I said, you know, those shoes still have a shelf life. <laughs> They're still going to wear out again eventually. So um, shelf life is something that we deal with in a lot of different areas of life. Have you ever seen this in your refrigerator? <laughs> Our food has a shelf life. Our medicines come with an expiration date on them. Our clothes wear out. Our cars break down. Even our physical body breaks down. I mean, we can have implants and transplants and preventions and interventions, but eventually there's nothing left to do and the body dies. Shelf life extends into our spiritual life as well, into the spiritual realm. And we've seen as we've begun the book of Hebrews and progressed our way through how many things the writer tells us have a shelf life. The Old Covenant has a shelf life. Moses delivered the people, but only from physical bondage to Pharaoh. Shelf life. Um, the Levitical priesthood had a shelf life. All of these fell short of meeting the most over, 
overarching problem that we have, and that is we need direct, permanent access to God. None of these good, God-given provisions were adequate. They were provisional, not permanent. They served God's purpose for a little while, a temporary era of redemptive history. And then they were ready to be replaced. And in our lesson this week, we saw one more institution that has a shelf life, and that is the Old Testament tabernacle and its rituals. Hebrews 9 tells us, once again, that God has established something new and better through his son. So let's watch and see how the author of Hebrews encourages us to leave behind the inadequacies of our former way of life and embrace the Son of God, our Savior, who demonstrated his superiority by entering heaven to us into the very presence of God. So first, the writer of Hebrews shows us the inadequacy or the shelf life of the earthly tabernacle. It gives us only an inadequate representation of God's presence. The earthly tabernacle was a glorious place, but it was only a symbol or a copy that pointed to something better. A minute ago, I showed you a picture of my shoes, just a symbol and a copy. You have no idea how comfortable those shoes feel. The symbol is always less than the reality. The reality is always more than the symbol can ever be. The tabernacle represented God's presence. But the scripture tells us that God cannot be contained in a man-made earthly physical space. He cannot be contained in houses made by human hands. In fact, rather than bringing the worshiper close to God, the tabernacle actually drew, only drew attention to their lack of access, to the distance between the worshiper and God. A sinful human mediator always stood between them and God. And the people had to stand at a distance on penalty of death. They had no personal access to God. Why was that distance enforced? Because of the people's sin problem. Their sin would pollute the holy place where God would meet with the high priest. A lot of times we think of the sacrifices as cleansing our sin for our benefit. But it was also, and maybe more so, to cleanse the, to keep, to deal with our sin that would pollute where God was. was. Um, it's a protection for God against our impurity, if you want to put it that way. And the tabernacle could do nothing to transform the inward corruption of the people. It inadequately solved the sin problem, didn't solve the sin problem. Our relationship with God, as you know, goes further than just the externals. It goes right down into the very depths of our being. It also goes beyond a physical space of an earthly tabernacle. 
right into the, it concerns the very holiness of God and his being. God cannot and will not tolerate sin. We see in the Day of Atonement, which the writer of Hebrews refers to in chapter 9 of Hebrews, this day was instituted right after the death of Aaron's sons. And you remember how they brought strange fire that God had not commanded into the tabernacle and their actions violated God's holiness. They did not treat God as holy. And so because they had brought strange fire, God consumed them with fire from heaven. And right after their death, God gave very express, detailed, elaborate um, ritual that involved washings, the slaughter of animals, um, the shedding of blood, the sprinkling of blood. Blood was everywhere, on the high priest, on the, his household, on the people, on the utensils, on the holy place. Blood, 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 because there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. The Day of Atonement was instituted so that the high priest could again approach on that one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement, could approach God and attain forgiveness for the past year's sins. But these sacrifices that he offered had a shelf life. They gave only a temporary clean, cleansing. They were unable to reach down into humanity's inward nature, our corruption, unable to transform us in, and to give us power to obey God. If we, as morally impure people, are to have access to an infinitely holy God, something profound has to take place deep within us, a transformation. We need to be transformed into someone who can please God. And the tabernacle, with its external rituals, could never do that. It could only bring uh, temporary cleansing. There's one more thing that the tabernacle was um, inadequate in doing, and that is that it was inadequate in cleansing our conscience. To gain access to God, we need a solution that's going to deal permanently not only with our sin, but also with the resulting guilt and shame that we have. We need a clear conscience. Guilt interferes with our relationships with one another. It causes us to hide. It causes us to blame, to find fault with people, to overcompensate trying to make up for the bad thing we did, to cringe in fear of, of being found out. It causes us to lie, to self-justify, or maybe self-condemn. It impedes our ability to concentrate, and eventually it will affect our physical and emotional and well-being, and we end up depressed. As if that's not bad enough, and it's not the worst thing, the worst thing is that it hinders our approach to God. It strips us of the courage that we need to approach God, because if we're guilty, we're not going to want to go into the presence of someone who is holy and righteous and perfect. The blood of bulls and goats could never give us a cleanse conscience. So we've seen three ways in which the tabernacle and its ritual was inadequate. 
could not bring us into the presence of God, could not take care of our sin, and could not give us a clear conscience. God had designed it as a temporary provision with limitations. But in the fullness of time, God was ready to supersede the very institution that he had instituted, that he had ordained. He was ready to reveal something better, far better, not just a temporary fix on the outside in a physical structure located in time and space, but an eternal salvation inaugurated by Jesus who became flesh and tabernacled among us, as it tells us in John 1.14. So let's take a look at the permanence of the heavenly tabernacle. <clears throat> Rather than entering the physical tabernacle as the Old Testament priests did, our great high priest Jesus entered into the heavenly tabernacle, the very presence of God in heaven by means of his own blood. And not only that, but having obtained eternal redemption, he has brought us with him into the Father's presence. We read in Ephesians, we're seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As our mediator, he has given us direct access to the Father, something we never could have experienced otherwise. All that former distance from God has a shelf life. It's been replaced by direct access. So just as Moses, as God said to Moses when he was giving him instructions for constructing the tabernacle, he now says to us, I will, there I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat I will speak to you. Exodus 25, 22, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Because it says, I will meet with you. That's fellowship. And I will speak to you. That's revelation from God. And those things are now a reality for each one of us who have believed in Jesus. And even better than that, one day we too will stand in heaven by means of Jesus' blood, face to face with God. And we'll see him as he really is. So our benefit by the, from the from Jesus entering the heavenly tabernacle is that distance is canceled, access is restored. I have been in a lot of situations in my life where I did not have the strength or the wisdom or the self-control to make my way through the difficulty or the pain. I'm sure you all have too. Um, one of the main issues that I deal with is a lack of compassion. Now, I hate to admit that. I wish I didn't. I wish it was not there, but it is. It's a weakness that I have. I got a verse for you, and I'm sorry you get in trouble, you know. But the compassion part, the feeling it with you, is not natural for me. I feel like I ought to be further along by now. I'm 73. I should have this down a little bit better, you know, than I do. But there is a simple solution for this weakness that I have. His power is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness rather than standing up here ashamed about it. I will now boast about my uh, lack of compassion that the power of Christ may dwell or tabernacle in me. 
Therefore, I'm well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Recently, there was a lady who was pouring her heart out, weeping to me about a circumstance that she found quite distressing. Quite frankly, that area wouldn't have bothered me at all. Not at all. And I, my first reaction is, really? That's bothering you? I mean, that's just what I was thinking. But it was just immediately followed by that because I was saying, Lord, I can't let this show. This woman, it's her pain. It's real for her. I can't do this. And immediately, the Lord pitched his tent right there. He tabernacled right that spot, flooding me with such compassion. I was weeping with the lady, and it was for real. It was not something I worked up. In my wildest dreams, I couldn't have made that happen. It was the reality of his presence in me, taking over, pitching his tent in my weak spot. It's a reality for all of my weak spots and all of yours too. Secured by the better sacrifice that Jesus has offered on our behalf and entered into God's presence on our behalf and brought us with him, we have access to God's presence in all those places where we are weak. So my question for us this morning is, what weak spot are you dealing with? I know you've got one. We all do. A weak spot that needs the reality of God's presence. You're not alone in the situation. You don't have to work it up. Embrace the presence of God. We need to take full advantage of the access that Jesus has made possible. Distance has a shelf life. Let's spend time with the Father. Meditate on his word. He's promised to meet with us and to reveal himself to us. Through his word, he is going to tell us clearly all we need to know about everything that really matters. He desires the pleasure of your company. You think about those wedding invitations. Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so request the pleasure of your company at the marriage of our daughter. He desires the pleasure of your company. He longs to show you who he really is and how you can please him. We need to learn how to spend our day in the awareness of his constant presence with us and his pleasure in us. Not just a morning quiet time, one and done, but all day long, casting every care on him in every crisis, looking to him for control in every emotional response, enjoying every pleasure with him, hearing his song of rejoicing over us, carrying on a moment-by-moment conversation because Jesus has entered the presence of God for us into heaven itself by his own blood. We have access. So in addition 
to the reality of his presence, we also need to embrace the reality of canceled sin. We saw how the earthly tabernacle could not deal adequately with our sin problem because it only deals with external purification. It made the worshiper able to participate in public worship, but not with the moral impurity that's embedded within the depths of our being. Let's think for a minute about our sin problem. Now, this is all this I'm about to say. You already know this, but I like to repeat it to myself because I forget it. Every single sin that we do incurs an, is, is an infinite offense because it's against an infinite God. His infinite wrath is aroused, demanding the death of the sinner. And an infinite debt is credited to our account. It's a debt we could never pay because we're finite. We don't have the infinite resources to pay that debt off. And we read in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed to man once to die. And we use that verse a lot to say that we have an appointment with death. And we do. God has the control and he knows the hour and the minute and the second, <laughs> the millisecond, when we'll stop breathing or our heart quit. But the point of this verse in the context is that we can only die one time. And the reason, the, the outflow of that is that how could we possibly ever pay an infinite debt? We only can die once. And every single sin that we commit requires that infinite payment. But God had a plan. At the consummation of the ages, that means at the high point of human history, Jesus has been manifested to put away or cancel sin by the sacrifice of himself. The Son of God would take on flesh. He had to be fully man in order to die. He had to be fully God for that death to have an infinite value, to be an infinite sacrifice, to pay the infinite death, debt and absorb the infinite wrath of God. Only when that debt is fully paid is access to an infinitely perfect God possible. Just as Jesus has entered the heavenly tabernacle by virtue of his own blood, our sin is canceled. Paul put it this way in Colossians 2.14, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of degrees against us which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. You may remember from your study of, of history that when Romans authorities crucified a person, they nailed a placard to the cross uh, listing and detailing all of their offenses so that anyone who walked by could see why, how they were guilty. Jesus took your list and my list and he nailed it to his cross, paying for our crimes and permanently canceled our debt. Canceled is a beautiful word to me because it shows me that sin has a shelf life. Jesus has taken it out of the way. We're no longer slaves to it. We don't have to do it. It no longer has power to rule our life. We've been given a new nature and the Spirit lives in us to empower us to do 
the things that please God. And we don't have to pay that debt back because we never could. Jesus has canceled that sin and the debt by the sacrifice of himself. So our benefit is sin canceled and righteousness restored. Where in your life do you need the reality of canceled sin? Every day we fall into, we fail in our attempts to, um, to be perfect, don't we? Some bad attitude, some random word, some impulsive action, some critical thought. Maybe sometimes even we stomp our foot and say, I'm not going to do it when God tells us something to do. But canceled sin says, I don't have to pay the debt for that. I don't have to sin anymore. I'm free to please God and to obey him. When we make excuses for our sin, well, I've always been this way. I mean, it's a lifelong habit. Oh, this is just how God made me. Um, it wasn't really all that important anyway. It was just a little thing. didn't really hurt anybody. Or we try to self-justify, which is I'm really good at self-justifying. I did that because. It really doesn't matter because what. The fact is that I did it, not why I did it. Um, if we do those things, we're saying that we don't really believe that Jesus has canceled it, canceled our sin. Sin has a shelf life. Let's embrace the sin solution. So we've seen that Jesus brings us into the presence of God, and we've seen that he permanently deals with the consequences of our, with our sin. Not the consequences, but with the sin itself. But we have another problem, and that is the guilt and shame that we carry from the sin that we have committed. The reality of a cleansed conscience is another reality we need to embrace. The Old Testament tabernacle with its rituals was unable to cleanse our conscience. We all know what it feels like to have a guilty conscience. Um, we talked earlier about how we hide and find fault and overcompensate and lie and a bunch of other things that we don't... You, we all have our own version of Old Testament ritual that we hope is going to help us get rid of our guilty conscience. These attempts to deal with guilt and shame on our own are dead works, just like the Old Testament sacrifices were. They don't accomplish anything positive or permanent for us, but because Jesus has entered the heavenly tabernacle into the very presence of God, on our behalf, he has cleansed our conscience. We don't have to deal with it on our own. We don't have to do all those counterproductive behaviors. If we try to get rid of our own guilt, it only turns us inward, and we end, it ends up keeping us from fulfilling God's call on our life. It's a beautiful thing to know that sin and guilt both have a shelf life. On the cross, Jesus took our guilt and our shame as well as our sin to give us a cleansed conscience. His shed blood has purified us from dead works to serve the living God and eagerly await his coming. So our benefit, guilt, is purified and clear conscience 
is restored. So is guilt keeping you from fulfilling God's call on your life? Maybe you have an area now that you're feeling guilty about that's keeping you from serving him and eagerly awaiting his return. And we know that there are two kinds of guilt. There's real guilt and there's false guilt. I heard about a, a comic that was um, showing a woman in a psychiatrist's office. And the psychiatrist says, Ms. Brown, I, I've finally found the cause, I think, of your, your guilt, your feelings of guilt. And she, Ms. Brown says, oh, good. I'm so glad. I'm, why am I struggling so? He says, Ms. Brown, the reason you're struggling with feelings of guilt is that you are guilty. <laughs> now, I don't know whether he had any good solution for that guilt or not, but we know that there is a solution for our guilt. If it's real guilt, we repent, we confess it, we thank God for the provision, and we move on. If it's false guilt, if sometimes the enemy moves in, or maybe some friends or family or somebody moves in, tries to put a guilt trip on you, and you didn't really do anything wrong. It's, but you feel guilty anyway. And so you, you're under that false guilt. When that happens, just have to refuse it, stomp your foot at the devil, and tell him to get away and not, tell you, not keep pestering you with that untruth and that accusation. But whichever kind of guilt it is, once you deal with it in the ways I've just described, we, we all need to just refuse to revisit it and refuse to pick up again what Jesus' blood has canceled. Move forward to do what God has called us to do, not letting that guilt immobilize us. Guilt has a shelf life. When we embrace the reality of a cleansed conscience, we're free to serve him and free to wait for his coming with eagerness. So the writer of Hebrews, as we close here, I just want to sum up a little bit. The writer of Hebrews has been um, bringing us along on a journey toward maturity, a journey toward better things. In previous lessons, he has encouraged us to embrace this journey by paying attention to the things we've heard and mixing it with faith so it's profitable. He's told us to consider Jesus, to draw near, to enter God's rest, to be diligent in these things. And in this week's lesson, we've heard the call to embrace a better reality. The old realities have a shelf life. Distance from God has a shelf life. Because Jesus has entered heaven on our behalf by his blood, let's embrace the new reality of access to God that he has opened up for us. Our sin problem has a shelf life. Because Jesus has entered heaven on our behalf by his blood, Let's embrace the new reality of sin canceled that he has purchased for us. Our guilty conscience 
has a shelf life. Because Jesus has entered heaven on our behalf by his blood. Let's embrace the reality of a cleansed conscience that he has purified for us so that we can serve the living God as we wait eagerly for his coming. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the, the better realities that you have um, purchased for us, that you have given us access to yourself so that we don't have to feel separated and far away, that you've canceled our sin so that we don't have to be a victim to it any longer, a slave to it. We're thankful that you have given us a clear conscience so that we can be about the business of serving you and loving you and worshiping you and eagerly waiting for your coming. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, um, to walk in light of these truths that we read in Hebrews 9. We thank you for this lesson this week, uh, for the liberty that is ours in Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.